because the interesting thing about green turtles is that when they're sexually mature, they're the only herbivorous species uh, of sea turtles. Mm-hmm. Uh, but before they reach sexual maturity, they're actually omnivorous. So they basically eat anything they want. So as they become mature, they start to transition their diets from being an omnivorous sea turtle to a primarily herbivorous sea turtle. That's amazing. So, yeah, it's really cool. Um, I don't know why they do that. <laughs> but yeah, it's really cool that the green turtles are the only species of sea turtles that, um, that does that. I swear, no matter how many times I learn about sea turtles, talk to t- sea turtle experts, I learn something new every time. It's amazing. These creatures are absolutely fascinating and you will love this episode where I chat to Melissa Chan all about sea turtle conservation in Malaysia. We talk about the local traditions of eating sea turtles and how the tide is shifting to and create more turtle protected areas. This episode is fascinating, so if you're interested in getting into turtle rescue and volunteering, if you want to learn about amazing NGOs that are working out there to protect our sea life, then this one is for you. Thank you so much for listening and being part of the Ocean Pancake family. Make sure to join the Facebook group for all the latest updates and talking to the 1,000 other ocean warriors who are in this fight to protect our oceans and our seas. If you do want to hear me interview anyone else, please send me an episode on oceanpancakepodcast at gmail.com or check out the website oceanpancake.com. I love hearing from you guys, so let me hear what you're interested in seeing, and yeah, let's get into it. Every day, there's a new news story about the crisis facing our ocean, whether it's the plastic issue, overfishing, pollution. If the oceans die, we die. Fortunately, we have plenty of environmental activists, marine conservationists, and eco-warriors who are out there every day fighting to protect our oceans and our Earth. On the Ocean Pancake Podcast, we're going to be hearing from some of them about how to decrease our environmental footprint, go plastic-free, participate in ocean conservation, cleanups, and even maybe some marine science. So, welcome to the Ocean Pancake Podcast, where the goal is sustainability and living a turquoise life. My name is Kat Andreskova, and I'm your host today. Let's get into this week's episode. Hi, and welcome to the Ocean Pancake Podcast. Today, I am here with Melissa Chan, who is the project manager of Peranhian Turtle Organization. So, welcome to the podcast. Thanks. Thanks for welcoming me, Kat. No problem. I'm so excited to have you here because turtles are one of my favorite creatures uh, and I'd love to learn more about them. So could you share with us a little bit your story of how you first got involved with turtle conservation? My story started as like something kind of not planned. Um, I, I didn't start off like wanting to work with turtles. I think when I was young, I definitely was really into marine biology and I kind of stumbled into sea turtle conservation uh, more for just like having a first experience of what it's like to be working in conservation, in marine biology and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I found out about like the sea turtle organization in Malaysia. Um, mm-hmm. And yeah, that was how it all started. That's amazing. And what exactly brought you to Malaysia in particular? Where are you from originally? 
Um, so I am I am from Malaysia. Um, I'm Malaysian, and mm-hmm. I come from the main city called Kuala Lumpur. Mm-hmm. So in Malaysia, like marine biology and marine conservation, it's like very, very um, like a rare niche, I would say. Because um, we're very like Asian in the sense that, you know, everyone is still pursuing like a career in business or like, yeah. medicine, those typical things. Um, so obviously when I told people, even my family, that I want to do like, you know, marine biology, marine conservation, um, they're slightly shocked. Uh, relatives are like, why? <laughs> um, but my parents tried to be supportive. So um, when I told them this, they urged me to look for, you know, volunteer programs that will help me gain better experience in it because clearly I wouldn't be getting any um, in the main city. Yeah, so that was how um, I basically started my journey. (laughs) That's amazing. I mean, Malaysia is one of those places in the world where it has some of the most incredible biodiversities. And I've actually been to Kuala Lumpur, but I haven't had a chance to dive in the surrounding areas. Can you tell people a little bit about what the ocean's like there and what kind of sea creatures live there and the temperature maybe? <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, so, um, well, it really depends on where you are in Malaysia because obviously mm-hmm. if you're in like, so Malaysia has um, two, um, how would I say, like kind of two ma- main land masses. So mm-hmm. one is the peninsula of Malaysia, which is um, directly below Thailand and just above Singapore and then we have Borneo Malaysia which is on the Borneo island we share it with Indonesia and um, Brunei yeah. um, and if you're on the west coast of peninsula Malaysia where it's very um, developed so most of the main cities are there um, the oceans there aren't very nice <laughs> just because there are a lot of you know like shipping lanes and as you mm-hmm. can imagine where development usually exists the surroundings aren't always as nice and pristine Mm-hmm. Um, but if you go over to like the east coast of Peninsula Malaysia and also to Borneo Malaysia, um, the waters there are a lot nicer. I would say they're about like turquoise. They're clear, um, clear turquoise waters. You can usually see the bottom, you know, on a nice, calm, clear um, ocean day. If it's like, you know, down to five meters, sometimes even up to like six to seven meters, you can still see the bottom. Oh. And um, because we're basically part of the coral triangle, so we do have a lot of um, basically tropical marine animals, um, the coral reefs, the fishes, um, we've got turtles. We have very few marine mammals just because our waters are quite warm. I would say the coolest it'll ever be is you know, 17 to 8 degrees Celsius. Oh, that sounds um, amazing. <laughs> <laughs> and the warmest um, is usually like m- more than 30. Uh, obviously, the, like the most uncomfortable ones I've been is like 33, 34 degrees, just because you know it kind of feels like bath water. Yeah. Um, but yeah, because it's kind of too warm for most marine mammals, so we rarely see them. But sometimes, like uh, where we are on the Perintan Islands, uh, we do see dolphins. You know, if you're out uh, on a boat, we do see dolphins. We do get whale sharks. Um, but I think um, besides that, the main marine megafauna we get are sea turtles. So what species of sea turtles do you get over there? Um, so in Malaysia, we get four, um, but in the Perintan Islands, we have only two. So the four species in Malaysia are um, the green turtles, the hawksbills, and the olive ridleys, and the leatherbacks, which we usually say now are locally extinct. Um, and in the Perintan Islands, we get the green and the hawksbill turtles. Why are the leatherbacks considered locally extinct? Have they just stopped coming there or did their populations drastically decline? Do you know what caused that to happen? 
Um, so unfortunately, it was humans. <laughs> um, and Malaysia, actually, you know, if you are a person who's like very into sea turtles and you're like you've read all the sea turtle textbooks in the mm-hmm. world, um, Malaysia usually pops up as a very um, unfortunately prime example of what not to do in sea turtle conservation. Mm-hmm. Um, so what happened was that Malaysia used to there. There is a beach um, on the east coast of Malaysia called Rantau Abang. Yeah, and it used to host, I would say, the second largest nesting population of leatherbacks in the world. And um, yeah, it was really popular both as a touristic spot, but also for people to take the eggs. And that was the main reason why um, the populations declined, because uh, especially on the east coast of Malaysia, the people here is um, it's a cultural and historical thing for them to just consume sea turtle eggs. In the past, mainly because it was an easy source of protein. Um, but obviously now, you know, when like the, um, we've got chicken and beef and everything that's going on. So like they don't necessarily need it anymore, but people still eat it because it's like a delicacy, because it's getting rare, uh, or just because they grew up with it and that's just what they like to eat. So people, um, basically there was no um, restriction or legislation around it. So people just basically took almost all the eggs most of the time whenever leatherback nested. Um, and that happened all the way until the 1960s. So ni- around the 1960s is when the population really started dropping to the point where um, hardly any leatherbacks came up to nest anymore. And actually by that time, obviously conservationists were also getting more aware about these things. So they tried um, doing their best to collect as many eggs as they can, maybe buying it from people who are collecting those eggs and incubating them. But it was also around the 1960s where researchers, sea turtle researchers, were just discovering that the temperature of incubation um, determines the sex of the sea turtles. Mm-hmm. So warmer temperatures will produce more females and cooler temperatures will produce more males. Um, but at the time, I suspect that the researchers might not have been aware of this. So they incubated the eggs a little bit too warm, like warmer than the optimal temperature to produce, you know, about 50-50. So they're mm-hmm. producing mainly females and releasing them back into the ocean. So the last time we had a leatherback come up to nest in Malaysia was in 2017. It was just one leatherback. Um, but unfortunately, she, she laid her eggs, but none of her eggs were fertile. Uh, which shows that, you know, even though she came back, there were no males in the surrounding population to mate with her to fertilize her eggs. Yeah. That's very sad. And how come this happened just to the leatherbacks and the Ridleys and Greens and Hawksbills kind of escaped the extinction in the area? Yeah, that's a a really great question. And I think it's because... um, well, one, leatherbacks, because of their large size, they also lay larger eggs as well. Mm-hmm. And because they lay larger eggs, so they don't lay as many eggs as um, the other sea turtles. So, for example, a green turtle can lay between 80 to 120 eggs. But I think leatherbacks only lay, like, I think definitely less than 80, 80 or less. Mm-hmm. Um, and also, compared to the green turtles and the hawksbills that, that nest basically all over Malaysia. So they can be found on this east coast, they can be found on Borneo, Malaysia. Um, a few even nest on the west coast of Malaysia as well. The leatherbacks nesting locations were a bit more, um, I would say, uh, specific um, mm-hmm. to certain parts of the east coast only. So, and because everyone knew where the leatherbacks were, 
um, because it was also a touristic thing to you know basically do turtle watching while the leatherbacks were laying their eggs mm -hmm. so um, everyone knew where they were and they just collected all the eggs and there weren't that many to begin with so and i i think that's why mm, it's very sad that um they're not there but luckily now with all these organizations, the greens and hawksbills and olives have a chance to, to keep their populations up. Um, mm -hmm. Is it still quite regular for, for Malaysian people to eat turtle eggs now? Um, I would say there's definitely a downward trend mm -hmm. and more regular definitely on this part of Malaysia. But you know, obviously if you go into uh, Kuala Lumpur and stuff, um, you definitely won't find anyone selling sea turtle eggs, at least not mm -hmm. openly. Uh, even if they do, it's really, really rare. But on this part of Malaysia, the East Coast, um, there is a market called Pasar Payang. And over there, you know, you can just walk in and people are just openly selling sea turtle eggs. Um, that's mainly because there is a flaw in our legislation. So, um, you know, after we realized what we have done to our leatherbacks, um, the Department of Fisheries quickly came up with like uh, some enactments to protect sea turtles mm -hmm. and so for leatherbacks it is illegal to do anything with them basically you cannot take their eggs you cannot harvest them uh, yeah even you can't even touch them and stuff like so they're completely protected in all life stages but for the other sea turtles because um, they're I guess at the time compared to the leatherbacks their populations weren't as um, critical as the leatherbacks so the protections for those species were a bit more relaxed. So um, I'm not sure about the olive ridleys, um, but for the green turtles and the hawksbills for sure, if uh, only certain beaches where they nest in are protected under the law. So if it's recognized by the law to be a protected beach, if you take, a, if you take any eggs from those beaches, mm -hmm. then that is considered illegal. But if it's a beach that is not protected, but a green turtle nests there, uh, and you take those eggs, it is technically not illegal i wouldn't say that it's legal because obviously it's not in the law either uh, but it's mm -hmm. definitely not illegal um and that's where the flaw is because obviously once you take the eggs from a beach whether it's protected or not and you put it into the market it's almost impossible to trace it back to which beach it came from so um yeah so i can easily you know like if i take a be uh take eggs from a protected beach and bring it to the market and sell it. If someone asks me, so did this come from a protected beach or not? I can easily say, oh no, it was from a non-protected beach. So it's technically legal for me to sell it. And there, there is no way for them to correct me on that. Yeah. And in the protected um, beaches, are there patrols or are there people protecting the beaches? Because I find one of the biggest issues in ocean conservation I've seen is despite the laws and the good intentions, there's just not enough enforcement um, for it to apply. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so um, I'm not sure how um, how well enforced it is or like how, um, ooh, how would I say, it? like the coverage, I guess, of the enforcement uh, for like the other beaches because I myself um, don't know how many beaches there are um, on this East Coast or around mm -hmm. Malaysia that are protected. But for example, in the islands closer to where I'm working is, so the Perhentian Islands and then uh, another island south of this, which is Redang Island. Uh, there are at least five to six beaches that are protected on each of these islands um, that are protected under the law. And so for both of these islands, the Department of Fisheries have hired local people from the local community to be rangers. So they're paid uh, a small allowance um, for them to be doing night patrols. So in Redang Island, 
each ranger kind of has their own jurisdiction of which beach they have to be at. So they just basically camp there and wait for the turtles and relocate the eggs either to the hatchery or just leave them to incubate um, naturally. Um, and then in Perhentian Islands, we have a few beaches around the islands where the rangers will be on two boats and patrolling the different islands looking for turtles and their eggs. And then when they collect those eggs, they relocate them into a hatchery. So I think the government definitely have made efforts to you know, make sure that these protected beaches are protected. But um, you know, sometimes, for example, in Pohentian, if um, you already patrolled that beach and you're patrolling a different beach and someone um, comes in at the time that you are not around and managed to get the eggs before you do, then that is when poaching happens as well. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And what is your particular organization's goal or where do you work and what kind of work do you do? Mm -hmm. So um, the Parenton Turtle Project, basically um, the overarching aim is definitely to conserve the sea turtles off the Parenton Islands. Mm -hmm. And the first step that we needed to do and that we are still doing is to monitor the sea turtle population because we only started in 2015. And when we started, we realized that there wasn't much or any research or data published about the Burlington Island sea turtle population. So basically, we didn't know how many turtles there are that we're, de that we're dealing with, where they go, what they do, um, and how many species there are. Mm -hmm. um, so what we did first was just try to monitor the population, but because we started out as a small organization without many like resources. So we chose to do it in a way that requires the least amount of resources, which is through photo ID. Um, mm -hmm. We basically photo identify the sea turtles using their facial scales um, because the patterns are unique to each individual. It's kind of like our fingerprints. So um, yeah, so we will use those facial scales to ID and distinguish between individuals and try to form a database to at least know, okay, in this population, we have this many individuals. And then from there, we can start monitoring like any decreasing or increasing trends. So that's one. And then another thing that we do is we also have permits to be on one of the um, fisheries protected beaches, uh, one of the main ones where they have their hatchery to assist the rangers um, to monitor the nesting population. So we would also respond to, you know, if a turtle comes up to lay her eggs, then we will collect biometric data, uh, also take pictures for ID. And we will mm -hmm. also relocate her eggs into the hatchery. And if you know there are any hatchlings coming up in the hatchery, then we would also release them as well. Yeah. And how long have so you been doing this work over there? So how much, how many years of data have you managed to accumulate? Um, the project itself, uh, we've been collecting data since 2015. So I would say this year is our sixth year, I think, of collecting data. Uh, for me personally, as the project manager, I only started in 2018. Um, so this is my third year. Um, but I, I have been like a volunteer with the project for um, a few times. So before 2015, the project kind of like started out um, very unofficially I would say they kind of like tested the waters a bit with different resorts and different locations um, and I volunteered with them during those times and then I also joined them as an intern before before mm -hmm. I became the project manager yeah and how many like have you been seeing any trends upwards or downwards of the populations um, based on personal observation they're they're uh, how do you say uh, it does seem like there is a decreasing trend. 
-hmm. um, especially with the nesting population. But the difficult thing about sea turtles is that, uh, well, one, they're, they live very long lives and they're very migratory species, which means mm -hmm. that, um, for example, with the nesting population, they only nest every few years. So our population, we always expect turtles to come back every two to three years. Mm -hmm. And so for us to determine whether the trend is decreasing or not, we need, um, so every two to three years, that's what we call a cycle. So we need at least three cycles to have occurred before we can safely say that, oh yes, there is a decreasing trend. So for now, because we started collecting data in 2015, we are only currently in our second cycle of data collection. Mm -hmm. And so we would need at least three more years of data collection um, to start comparing it. But if, if it's just up to me to say something, not as a scientist, you know, and not yeah. like, publish any, anything. Um, yeah, there, there is quite a decrease. For example, in 2016, we had about 100 plus turtles nesting at our beaches. But then, you know, two to three years after that would be around 2019. And in 2019, we didn't get all our turtles coming back to nest. We only got, I would say, 10% of those, if not fewer. Mm -hmm. But we also had a few new turtles coming up. So um, it's both um, sad and exciting at the same time. Mm -hmm. <laughs> like it's sad that we didn't get all our turtles coming back and only like 10% of what we initially had. But it's also slightly exciting because we know that there are still new, uh, still new individuals in the population. Um, to kind of buffer that, yeah. But in total, comparing 2019 and 2016, just the number of individuals, 2019 definitely had fewer individuals than 2016. Well, I guess we're gonna have to see what the trends are looking like in the next few years, just because it's hard to, hard to tell because it takes them so long to reach sexual maturity as well. Um, mm -hmm. I mean, you guys are looking at the greens and hawksbills. So what does their typical life cycle look like? Yeah, so um, I'll talk mainly about the green turtle because mm -hmm. it's the species I work uh, most closely with, so I'm definitely more familiar with them. Um, for a green turtle, I usually like to start with the nesting turtle. So a nesting mom will come up and she can lay anywhere between 80 to 120 eggs per clutch. And she actually can come up to lay five to seven times in a season. Mm -hmm. um, and actually those number of times differs for each population. So you can have some populations in China or in Philippines, for example, that only lays like two to three times in one season. But in the Bernadette Islands, we, our average is about five to seven. Mm -hmm. We've had some turtles nesting nine times in one season. Oh, wow. And yeah. And in Do you know what that, like why that happens? Like why s some nest more than others? Um, I don't know. I mean... I haven't really read any papers that uh, specifically explains all of these yet. Um, doesn't mean that obviously that there are no papers out there. I'm sure there are people who have done research, but I haven't gotten to those yet. But my suspicions um, have something to do, I think it has something to do with um, how far the sea turtles are migrating and how much fat storage they have. Because mm -hmm. uh, when sea turtles, you know, they don't, um, again, you know, different populations, even within the same species, um, vary a lot. Um, so some populations can nest every single year and some populations will nest every two or three years. So mm -hmm. populations that don't nest every year, they're actually spending those years in between to just build up their fat storage to start the migration because we, uh, some research suspects that uh, when sea turtles are breeding and nesting, they actually don't eat much. Like they're mm -hmm. basically fasting. So they're relying a lot on their fat storage to produce those eggs, to mate, 
and um, to basically survive during the whole nesting time before they start migrating back towards their feeding grounds. Mm -hmm. And because sea turtles um, can migrate very, very long distances, so between Malaysia to Japan, um, some migrate closer between Malaysia to Vietnam as well. But I think, you know, like maybe the distance that they're migrating and depending on um, how much food they're getting every time they um, are feeding and building up their fat storage, I think those factors may be affecting, you know, how basically fertile uh, a nesting turtle is and how many mm -hmm. patches of eggs to produce. Yeah. Okay. So once, once she comes up onto the nest, um, how did you, sorry, did you mention how long they um, incubate and then what the temperature is that determines whether they're male or female? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so um, when a turtle has laid her eggs, then those eggs will take about 45 to 60 days to incubate in the sand. And mm -hmm. um, yeah, like I mentioned earlier, um, the temperature of the nest determines whether the hatchlings come out as males or females. So warmer temperatures will produce more females and cooler temperatures will produce more males. Um, so once after 45 and 60 days have passed, then the hatchlings will hatch and then they'll come up onto the beach, bury, um, dig their way out. And then they usually come out at night just because it's a lot cooler. Um, and ideally fewer predators in, on land, so on the beach. Mm -hmm. So once they're all out, then they'll scurry down the beach into the water and then they'll start what we call a swimming frenzy. So they just keep swimming um, non-stop until they reach open ocean um, and because they're swimming non-stop they're relying on their um, they have a little yolk sac at the bottom of their belly and mm -hmm. so they're relying on that yolk sac to um, feel their energy while they're doing their swimming frenzy once they reach the open ocean that is where they will just kind of you know drift with the currents um, maybe swim a bit here and there and just feed on anything that's smaller than them so it can be you know tiny little crustaceans like shrimp it can be tiny little fish or algae and stuff like that and then they keep feeding and then once they get bigger um reaching around like you know juvenile stage then for green turtles at least they will start migrating towards coral reef areas and that's where they will start feeding on you know, like jellyfish soft corals um, sponges and sometimes crustaceans and algae as well and then um, as they keep growing bigger as they keep um, getting towards the adult stage, they'll start migrating towards seagrass beds. Because the interesting thing about green turtles is that when they're sexually mature, they're the only herbivorous species uh, of sea turtles. Mm -hmm. uh, but before they reach sexual maturity, they're actually omnivorous. So they basically eat anything they want. So as they become mature, they start to transition their diets from being an omnivorous sea turtle to a primarily herbivorous sea turtle. That's amazing. So, yeah, it's really cool. Um, I don't know why they do that. <laughs> but yeah, it's really cool that the green turtles are the only species of sea turtles that, um, that does that. And so once it starts feeding on seagrass beds, obviously if they're not sexually mature yet, it's quite common to find you know, juveniles and sub-adults still going back and forth between coral reefs and seagrass beds um, to mm -hmm. feed. But once they become sexually mature, then they feed primarily on seagrass um, and then build up their fat storages. Once they feel like they're ready, then they start their migration back towards the general region that they first hatch from. So, for example, if let's say a sea turtle hatch in the Brentian Islands, for example, in Beach A, you know they can migrate to the Philippines, they can they can migrate to Japan or anywhere else, and um, and then when they're ready to nest and breed again, then they'll come back to the Brentian Islands. They may go back to Beach A specifically. We've had a few sea turtles that. Um, 
nested all nine times at at the same beach and we've also had some sea turtles nesting like four times in beach A, five times in beach B and stuff like that. So, you know, like when people say like they come out to the same exact beach to nest, it's not entirely true. Um, so, yeah, but the general region that they hatch from, that's where they usually go back to. That's amazing. And that is uh, due to the imprintation apparently that they have on the beaches once they leave or how exactly do they navigate back to the area? Yeah, so um, that's also another cool thing about sea turtles. And um, there's a, I would say there are a lot of factors that um, go into that. Um, many different researchers have been trying to pinpoint specific factors, you know, like which is the main one, but it's been really hard because there's just so many different variations. So the main one, I think, I would say, if let's say they're just hatchlings, they're imprinting on chemical cues from the beach itself. Um, and then we believe that you know, once they're out in the open ocean, they can actually start detecting the magnetic fields uh, of the earth. Um, I, I believe there was like some research that found that they found little um, biomagnetites. So basically they're like iron or like little magnets in the sea turtle's brain. Um, birds have them too on the, at the edge of their beaks for those migratory birds. And it seems that sea turtles have similar compounds in their brains as well. So um, they believe that it's those compounds that helps them detect the magnetic field of the earth. And as you know, they're hatchlings and imprinting on their location, both chemical cues and that their magnetic location is what they're trying to, um, I guess, naturally remember. And some people also say that they uh, also rely on ocean currents as well. Uh, yeah, so many different factors. Some people even say that they actually can read like the stars. Um, oh, wow. <laughs> yeah, it's really crazy. Like a lot of different experiments have been done. I'm just trying to figure out how they actually do it. And there is no one way. So it's really hard to say. But once, you know, they're out into the open ocean and they're growing, whether they're hatchlings or adults, they just start to drift with the currents and then, you know, relying on their the ability to detect the magnetic field and stuff like that, um, they can just somehow find their way back. Yeah, it's, it's just really complicated. And even I still find it like really amazing. But it's also because of this that researchers have found that, um, you know, because our Earth's magnetic field actually shifts every, I don't know how many years. Um, I'm not a geologist, <laughs> so I'm not quite sure, but it does shift. Um, and because it is shifting, so people have actually detected that the sea turtles' um, nesting patterns have also kind of shifted. Um, for example, if they shift from like you know region A to region F on a certain beach, you know in a few years, if the magnetic fields have shifted, they found that the sea turtles started nesting from region C to region like I don't know G or something like that so they are slowly moving and we suspect it's, it might be because they're relying on the magnetic field which is also shifting as well yeah that's incredible so they're slowly shifting down well I guess we'll see in a few years what what keeps happening now that we're gathering data on them regularly mm -hmm. yeah um, and you were saying that you know humans are one of the big problems not only in Malaysia but across the world when it comes to sea turtle populations but what are some of the other um, threats uh, that can be decreasing turtle populations? Mm -hmm. So if we're talking just like natural threats there are mm -hmm. quite a few and it also really depends on where you are in the world so for example if we're just talking about Malaysia um, the main ones are usually monitor lizards, um, crabs, 
um, for those, you know, attacking on hatchlings and the eggs. So monitor lizards, crabs, ants as well, little red ants that live in the sand. Mm-hmm. And then there are like fungal infections that can decrease the uh, success rates of um, eggs. And then once they're out and about hatchlings, because they're so small, they can be eaten by literally anything. Um, so same thing with the crabs and monitor lizards as well. Once they're in the water, um, any fish that are larger than them uh, will eat them. So like groupers or sea bass and stuff. Um, sharks for sure, definitely. I think there was um, in in the island south of here called Radang Island. There is a group of students um, doing conducting research on sharks. I think the relationship between you know shark predation and sea turtle hatchlings. And they found like a little baby shark washed up on their beach once. It was a black tip reef shark and they decided to cut it up just to see what's in its stomach. And it was just filled with baby hatchlings. It was <laughs> both incredible and scary at the same time. <laughs> yeah. uh, so sharks are definitely one of the biggest predators. Uh, even sometimes when uh, we do hatchling, hatchling releases at night, we're just walking down the beach. If the moon is out and the waters are calm, we can you know see into the water. And sometimes we'll just like notice a few sharks, especially baby sharks, just following us. Um, so we feel like, oh, they know that we're going to, you know, release the hatchlings. Um, so yeah, sharks definitely. And then birds as well. Um, eagles, hawks, seagulls sometimes eat baby hatchlings. But as sea turtles grow bigger, at least for the ones we have in Malaysia, um, the larger they grow, the fewer predators there are that can um, consume them because they have hard shells. So usually once they you know, are sexually mature and fully grown, the only ones that can really threaten them are um, tiger sharks, great whites, <laughs> um, and killer whales as well. But besides that, um, yeah, not many can um, attack them and predate on them. So they're only most vulnerable before they reach their full grown size. Yeah. And then in terms of things like climate change or you know plastic pollution are those things impacting the sea turtles in malaysia Mm, yeah i would say so i i personally haven't encountered any sea turtles where you know the the cause of death was definitely because of plastics um or like pollution to say Um, fishing net entanglements yes Mm -hmm. Uh, with boat strikes which is I think a threat not commonly talked about when you know we talk about like basically even marine megafauna in general Um, but boat strikes do happen just because where we are it's a very um, touristic area so lots of boat traffic and you know sea turtles they are air breathing animals are they're reptiles so they have lungs and they need to surface every few minutes to breathe so if a boat is coming and they either can't avoid it in time or the boat doesn't see the turtle in time a collision will happen where either if the turtle's lucky, it gets away from an injury that it will, you know, heal and survive from. Mm-hmm. Um, but if it's unlucky and the boat really, you know, clashes into it, then uh, the sea turtle can actually die from a boat strike. So, um, yeah. And then fishing net entanglement. I haven't seen one personally caught in fishing nets before, but we get a lot of sea turtles kind of um, already dead floating into the islands. And every time, you know, if I have a local community member with me who witnesses it as well, they always mm-hmm. say like, oh, it must have died because it drowned from getting stuck in a net or something. Yeah. So, um, yeah. And with climate change, um, it definitely impacts the nesting turtles for sure because, you know, we talked about how the incubation temperature affects the sex of the turtles. So with, you know, warming climates, we are expecting that more and more of the naturally 
um, hatch turtles will be um, females. Mm -hmm. um, some organizations around the world are already trying to like combat that with these suspicions. So some people are trying to incubate them in like um, polystyrene um, boxes, trying to keep them cool or like really shade the area, uh, shade the hatchery, um, so that it's not as hot as well. To so trying to like skew the the sex ratio back towards more males, mm -hmm. so that it produces like an overall relatively balanced sex ratio um yeah so i think those are like the main factors yeah besides you know like egg poaching and um secret hunting mm -hmm. that's well it's it's good to know and i i always ask my guests well what is the one thing that they can do if they want to help the oceans or sea turtles in this case mm -hmm. um obviously so so many different ways like it's it's so hard to like list them all down, you know, it really depends on where you are and what your capacity is as a person, um, many indirect ways that you can help, many direct ways. Um, I always say to just start locally, um, you know, if you're in a place that you know that has a lot of sea turtles coming up either to nest or like that feeds around your area, like maybe check out organizations, just like, you know, basically within your area that are doing sea turtle work and try to support them in different ways. You know, you can mm -hmm. volunteer, um, you can even donate or just like spread the word about them because, you know, usually small organizations need the most help um, in doing their work. And, you know, if you have a bit more capacity to help, then definitely consider, you know, and especially if you're in an area that doesn't have sea turtles or you're not, you don't live anywhere close to the ocean, but you really want to help as well. And if you have more resources um, to do it, then, you know, feel free to look for an organization elsewhere and travel there and help as well. Um, and then, you know, if you feel that you you know, volunteering is not really a thing, traveling is not really a thing, that's completely fine as well. Obviously, even within your own lifestyle, there's so many things we can change. Um, I think the ones that everyone is talking about is reducing our plastic, um, plastic consumption, especially single-use plastics, you know, trying to use um, as many reusable items as we can. And also, the one thing I like to tell people is also just reducing waste production in general. You know, it doesn't even matter if it's like single-use plastics, you can even be like food um, food waste and stuff like that reducing mm -hmm. our like carbon footprint and stuff is also really important because for example sometimes when we take the trash out um, and put it in the bigger bin outside that's all we know that that's where it goes and then the garbage truck comes and it takes it but then after that like we don't know where it goes you know like yeah. we don't think about where does our trash actually go does it get incinerated does it uh, end up in a landfill or do people just you know like dump it in the ocean you know because like there are islands out there made entirely of trash. Yeah. Um, and, you know, if landfills are piling up or like if people are shipping their trash across oceans, think things can just fall off the shipping container and I'm in the ocean. So even if you feel like, oh, I bagged my trash, I put it in a trash can, that's great. Um, it might still end up in the ocean one way or the other. So I usually tell people just try to reduce as much as possible in, in so many different ways. Yeah. That's great advice. Um, thank you so much for that. And I'll surely have all your details, your social medias, your website um, available on the Ocean Pancake website. So everyone can go over there, check out the amazing work you're doing and potentially support uh, because we need to support these organizations all over the world to help protect the uh, sea turtle populations. So yeah, thank you, Melissa, so much for being here with me today.
Yeah, no, thank you, Kat, for having this conversation. Always love talking about sea turtles. (laughs) I know, I could keep going for hours, but have to cut it. Yeah, (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I completely understand. (laughs) All right, thank you so much, and I'm sure we'll chat again soon. All right, thank you. Bye-bye. So that was that. I hope you learned something new from Melissa. I know I certainly did, and I really enjoyed this episode. I swear, turtles are incredible, and it's amazing how little we know about them. So next time you see a sea turtle, uh, just think about the mysteries that they uh, have in their life. And yeah, help protect our oceans by making sure to decrease your carbon footprint. For all tips and tricks on how to decrease your environmental footprint, head on over to oceanpancake.com. If you would like to support me in the work I do, it would mean the world if you became a patron or donated or got yourself a Plastic is the Killer. I'm also having merch, ah, Ocean Pancake merch that you can wear and support the podcast and support the sea. Thank you guys so much. Also, make sure to check out Graham Mose, who is the music in this podcast. He's absolutely amazing. Uh, check him out on Facebook, or if you're in Brisbane, go and see a live show. Truly incredible funky beats. You will not regret it. See you guys in the next episode. Also, I need a sign-off. Can you guys think of a nice sign-off? I don't know. Anyway, send me an email. Bye!